0: This is the Talent Talks podcast from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. I'm Alan Caesar. In the Wicked studio with me today is Dennis Jones. He already had his pilot's license when he started at Embry-Riddle and studied aviation maintenance, avionics, and aviation technology, graduating with his bachelor's degree in 1980. As a student, he was one of the founding members of Brothers of the Wind uh, the first club here on campus for African-American students. Um, he just retired earlier this year from his post as managing director at the National Transportation Safety Board, where he investigated some 1,500 aircraft accidents over his four-decade career. Uh, an article on his life and achievements was the cover story for the fall 2018 issue of Lyft magazine. Dennis, thanks very much for coming to campus.
1: Yeah, you're very welcome.
0: <laughs> All right, so you came back to Daytona Beach uh, to be our commencement speaker this morning. Um, you just retired. You're standing in front of hundreds of students, uh, well, soon to be alumni, at the school where you got your degree. Uh, how did that feel? What's that experience like up there? Well, the
1: world word is surreal. Um, you know, here I am up front talking to a very large audience. I didn't expect that many folks here. I understand that's the largest graduating class ever. I was told close to 850 or so. I'm graduating right. students, so I um, I was a very large arena and. Um, Big, big crowd there, so I, I was um, very much um, impressed and um, very um, gratified and um, privileged to be here to, to give that speech. And again, at my alma mater, I'm someone who was actually in the audience many, many years ago looking at a commencement speaker with no clue that I would be a commencement speaker here. So those kind of things were going through my mind as I was up there. That's pretty cool.
0: What's one of the nuggets of wisdom you tried to impart on the men and women in the audience?
1: The, the Nuggets on the amount of Women?
0: Uh, <laughs> nuggets of Wisdom. Oh, <laughs> You're I thought you
1: said f- the Nuggets of Women. No, no, no I, I'm <laughs> glad you clarified that. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, I try to give some some words of wisdom. I, in fact, as I was coming over here today, um, one of the students that was in the audience stopped me and, and thanked me for talking about student loans because mm. um, I know I had a battle with that while I was going um, through school. I mean, I had it, you know... Uh, get many, many loans to get through school. I used to call myself the Loan Ranger for the, well, the loans I took out. <laughs> and um, and so I wanted to put that out there. And you know, when I showed up here um, a zillion years ago, the the um, the tuition was $650 a semester. And I'm sure it's going up since then right <laughs> Just a little bit, just a little bit. And uh, so I had to, uh, I only had enough money for one semester. Um, I knew I was taking a chance. I said, well, let me get down there. Uh, I'll figure it out from there. So figuring out was, um, you know, taking on jobs and uh, doing all kinds of odd things, including working at the Daytona Speedway, working at the Volusia Mall, doing work there, fast food, restaurants all over uh, town here, you know, trying to, you know, make money so I can be able to afford school.
0: Yeah, so uh, you learned to fly by working at an airport in on Long Island, watching yeah. airplanes, doing other uh, oh, you're, jobs.
1: You're, yeah, <laughs> you know that story. Um.
0: A little bit, yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I always wanted to learn how to fly. I lived near a small airport, which is now closed, but airplanes were always flying over my house. And I said, man, I wish I could learn how to fly. But you know, not having the finances to do it, um, you know, I had to figure that out. So I would hang around the airport. I became kind of like an airport rat. You know, yeah. people would see me around there all the time. I guess they started feeling sorry for me. He said, hey, kid, you want look like you want to learn how to fly. I said, yes, I would like to, but, you know, I don't have, you know, the cash, the money to do it. So um, one of the folks there at the airport said, look, let's work out a deal for you if you wash airplanes. And, you know, we, you can use that to advance for flight lessons. And I said, wow, that's cool. And but little did I know what was in waiting for me because um, – he says, for every 20 airplanes you wash, you get one hour of flight time. <laughs> and said, and of course, I didn't know how many hours you needed. Yeah. And I says, oh, okay, that sounds good. I thought maybe you needed five hours of, um, you know. And yeah, I yeah, said, 100 airplanes, you'd yeah. be done, right? So I, said, um, <laughs> so I said, so how many hours do you need? And you got to keep in mind that's the minimum, at least at that time, was 40 hours. Most people need more than that. It's just yeah. a minimum. And then he said, 40 hours. I says, wait a minute. I did some quick math. I said that's 800 airplanes. He says, that's the deal. (laughs) So anyway, 800 airplanes later. um, In fact, it was actually more because it took me more than 40 hours. Uh, It took me actually 50 hours to get my private policy license.
0: Yeah. Uh, So then you came to Embry-Riddle. You got your A&P in avionics uh, and avionics certification. Um, Tell me how, so those two experiences uh, kind of, fed into your uh, work as uh, an accident investigator. Oh, yes,
1: very much so. Um, the um, When I arrived here, I was a, there was a course called Aviation Maintenance Management. That was the um, uh, program. It basically was a business degree with an A&P license, okay. Aviation Maintenance Management. I don't know if they still offer it, but that, that it was a bachelor's degree. So I started off with getting my A&P license. So mm-hmm. in the morning I was taking the A&P courses, and then in the afternoon I was taking academic courses. And that's what I was doing. And um, so over the years, and between breaks of working and then coming back to school, I started you know, getting the credit hours. And, but I got my A&P license within the first 18 months I was here. And, um, and then I used that, um, before you had the kind of maintenance facilities here, I was able to get a job to work at Daytona Beach Aviation. That was the company that did all the work on Embi Riddle's airplane. And it was uh-huh. o- on the other side of the field. So I started working on their graveyard shift from like 11 o'clock to 7 o'clock in the morning. So essentially I worked on the airplanes while they were idle overnight, you know, yeah. getting them ready for the next day. And um, so I actually took on that job of working on a Muriddle's airplane and still going to school, but they on my A&P license.
0: So you got a lot of hands-on time between washing and working on airplanes. You got to be real intimate with sort of
1: these machines. You're exactly right, and you know the... Um, the washing the airplanes paid off because, you know, when you're washing an airplane, you use the word intimate. I mean, I'm underneath looking at the belly. I'm looking at <laughs> that. And yo and behold, years later, when I'm doing accident investigation, I'm seeing airplanes in pieces. Yeah. And because I had always been really close to them, so when I would get to the scene of a crash, I recognized them. Y- even though, it, you know, for most people, it's a crossword puzzle. Yeah. But to me, it's like, oh, yeah, I remember that because I used to wash over this side of the airplane, and that's that screw, and that's that rigid f- uh, rivet for this. And so... Um, it was a blessing in disguise and you might have heard me uh i don't know if you were at the ceremony today but i was talking about that um to me there's no menial work you know to (coughs) me they're all meaningful um and because uh, my upbringing was this is that the dignity (coughs) is not in the job you bring the dignity to the job Uh -uh. and so i always took pride in anything i did even if i was mopping the floor at a restaurant here in town i i always did with great pride so that intimacy you talked about came in handy later. Uh,
0: so as an investigator, what are some of the first things you look for when you get to a
1: crash site? Well, it, you know, each crash is different. Um, that's one thing about an airplane site, you never know where it's going to be. It could be on top of a mountain, as I had to do in, in Kenya. I had to climb to 19,000 feet to get yeah. to, <laughs> to the top of a crash site, or it could be in a you know, crash site in the middle of a downtown city. Mm -hmm. are very very different and under different circumstances and sometimes if the airplane um, comes apart in the air it's spread over a long long distance so each one's different uh, but mainly when I get on scene um, I I try to determine is is the whole airplane there is it intact yeah And we call it the four corners you know we walk around the airplane is the wings there? Is the tail there is the nose there because if it's not there then it may be somewhere else and Mm -hmm. that will give you an indication and maybe you had some um, Of in-flight event, something may have come off. Sure. So that's what the first thing we try to do. We try to make sure that it's all there.
0: Okay. When you're done with an investigation, do you find that it's just one thing that went wrong or is it more of a confluence of factors
1: usually? No, they're all different. Um, um, I'll try to make it simple. Um, For any vehicle, I don't care if it's a car, an airplane, a boat, a train, to go from point A to point B, and we used to use this line all the time, you have an interface between the man, the machine, and the environment. Mm-hmm. And when you have a breakdown of that interface, you have accidents. And I use uh, man, you know, in a multi-gender way. Sure. Um, nowadays we use it the term liveware, hardware, and software. <laughs> and you have an interaction of that. And when it breaks down, you have accidents. So what we're trying to do is to see where did that breakdown take place? Sometimes it could be the combination of, the, of all of them. You know, if you want to drive in a car on a, Wet road on a when it's raining hard and you're going very high speed you got a lot of things going um, as far as decision making of how fast to be going yet you're on a wet surface and some other thing so it's never any one particular thing this is just a combination okay
0: how does uh Accident investigation, determining the causes, uh, how does that become change in policy or protocol in the national airspace or at uh, aircraft manufacturer?
1: Well, it depends. The purpose of an accident investigation is to de- develop the facts, conditions, and circumstances around the occurrence. Mm-hmm. From those facts, you analyze those facts, and from those analysis, you draw a conclusion, and mm-hmm. those conclusions are known as findings and um, ultimately probable cause so typically, you'll see in a probable cause statement um, the causes and the contributing factors. No. That's where we headed. And from that, we make recommendations um, to corrective action because the whole purpose of an action investigation is not to, to apportion blame. It's to prevent future occurrences. That's the whole purpose. And incidentally, recommendations can be made at any point of an investigation. You don't have to wait to the end. I mean, you may get there and see something right away It says, wow, we may need to have some fix done. And that could be done at the pilot level, maybe at the company level, it could be done at the regulatory level. Um, there's many ways that sometimes there could be an immediate um, hazard to the system. And that needs to be dealt with right away.
0: Do you think uh, um, aviation is safer today than it used to be?
1: Well, you go by the statistics. I haven't looked at the statistics. Um, I will tell you this, um, until last year, um, the first fatal accident involving a domestic commercial um, flight happened, and it was the first time in 10 years. You might recall that outside of um, Philadelphia, there was an in-flight occurrence where the window broke and, the, and one of the passengers almost got extricated outside of the airplane, but that was the very first um, a fatal domestic occurrence in ten years. And think about how many flights a day that takes place in this country. Think about that. And as we speak right now, there's probably car accidents occurring. So um, um, something else I've seen over the years, and this goes back even before my time, years ago, way, way years ago, uh, maybe in the 50s, 60s, earlier, whenever there was a major accident, quite often the next day you see passengers all over the country canceling their flights. Mm-hmm. afraid to go for Well, you don't see that much anymore. What you see now, um, I've actually done some accident investigation where people have been on accidents, survived it, rushed into the terminal building, trying to get booked on another flight. <laughs> <laughs> so the confidence in aviation is extremely, extremely high as far as I'm concerned. And, uh, but I, I just wanted to show you that figure about the first domestic occurrence mm-hmm. of fatality of a commercial um, carrier in 10 years. I mean, that's there were years that we used to uh, think that zero accident was impossible.
0: Yeah, I used to hear about them fairly often, right? Yeah. Um, what, uh, do you think there are many particular technical, technological advancements that have made the biggest impact on aviation safety?
1: Well, an aircraft, and, you know, I, I, I'm someone who's been um, involved with um, multimodal mm-hmm. modes of transportation, you know, all modes, aviation, highway, railroad, marine, pipeline. And um, so I kind of look at it from the point of view that the same technology is being applied across the board. Autonomous vehicles, right now, which is basically mm-hmm. autopilots right. that you see in cars, have been in airplanes for quite a long time. You're starting to see them in other modes of transportation. You'll soon soon see them in um, boats. Uh, you'll soon see them. You're starting to see them in trucks already. I'm sure you're hearing all kinds of stories about. Uh, <coughs> uh, drones being used, and so a lot of the same technology is being used ac- across modes, making um, a lot of, um, you know, making things much safer. So the technology has helped.
0: Okay, well, so interestingly enough, so there's a lot of uh, talk uh, about the dangers of automation among mm-hmm. some people. Mm-hmm. Uh, pilots have talked uh, for decades now about how little hand flying they do anymore, mm-hmm. um, spending just a couple minutes at takeoff and landing and direct control of the plane, right? Um, with that, there's also the talk that their skills might go soft uh, if big uh, automation becomes too pervasive, um, but you know, uh, the push to automate more is driven by the fact that a lot of these accidents are caused by human error. Uh, where, where do you stand on this?
1: Well, we would, not, we would need another two hours for me to go into detail. <laughs> I don't know if I can do it in like two or three minutes, but I will say this, is that um, <clears throat> Something I've been seeing more and more, and I'm talking about worldwide, because I I have a worldwide perspective outside the US, because I've done so many crashes outside, is that um, (sighs) you have what is known as normal flying, then you have what is known as abnormal situations that occur. You know, you have a normal type of activities of pilots are flying using a normal checklist. But when something, when there's an irregularity, you the second mode or the next mode is um, uh, abnormal mode. So they'll mm-hmm. have a checklist to act, to respond to an abnormality. A warning light comes on or something that typically is manageable. Mm-hmm. And then you have this other mode called emergency mode, okay, which is a you know a big hazard or perhaps a threat to that particular flight. So to answer your question, <coughs> something I've seen more and more um, over the years is that something um, because the technology is so reliable. I mean, you can go mm-hmm. hours and hours and hours. When something abnormal takes place, the reaction to the odd abnormality or irregularity is such that they turn it into an emergency. Mm. Okay? And um, so that's something I've been seeing um, more and more now. Uh, c- again, something that w- would have been manageable before, uh, for whatever reason, um, their reaction to it actually aggravates the problem and puts it th- into an emergency situation and that's something that I see um, have increased more than um, I've seen s- s- in the past. Is
0: there a particular example you can think of of that?
1: Well, uh, I certainly don't want to talk about active investigation, but um, mm-hmm. you know, um, again, I'm, I'm just going through a catalog of cases from around the world. I don't want to k- point to any particular um, uh, um, airline or anything of that nature, but um, yeah, there's, b- there's been some cases where um, there was a um, airplane went into an unusual attitude after takeoff and um, meaning it went to a steep bank mm-hmm. they thought the autopilot was on and it wasn't the airplane was actually going on a the bank they were doing something else they thought it was on and they thought the movement it was doing was in response to the autopilot and then when they realized that the airplane was going into a steeper bank the pilot, when he grabbed the control wheel and they were in the cloud, he turned it the wrong way. He turned it further into Ooh. the turn. And the airplane <coughs> went into even a steeper turn and um, almost went upside down. But it it, it it crashed and killed everybody on board. But it was something that was easily manageable, but again, the reaction to it just made it you know, uh, more aggravated.
0: Yeah. Um, <coughs> taking some of these lessons to sort of the general aviation world. What are some things that a a general aviation pilot can do to prevent a crash?
1: Well, um, fly safely. (laughs) I know that sounds very, very, you know, um, I'm a pilot too, I mean, I I fly all the time. Um, I'm someone that will go to a crash site and go flying right after leaving the crash site. Um, I feel very confident in aviation. This is something I've put out on many occasions. Um, there are car accidents happening right now as we speak right mm-hmm. okay and um you're probably pretty comfortable that it was probably s- someone um it was related to the performance of the driver. Right. Not many people have a problem with that right right. And uh, it's happening all over the place. Running through traffic lights, going too fast, whatever, tailgating, and there's accident. No, it doesn't matter. But you say take that same guy and you put him in the airplane, and all of a sudden, wow, how could he make a mistake? (laughs) (laughs) They accept it when he's on the ground, but now he gets in the airplane. He's supposed to become some kind of magical person who is dealing with that same man-machine environment interface and has accidents. So some of the same things that happen in other vehicles. Unfortunately, it's the same person. You're now putting them to uh, uh, an aircraft, and (laughs) in general aviation, um, (laughs) you certainly, in many cases, don't have the same level of sophistication and you know aircraft and also um, pilot experience. So all of those things allow um, more opportunities for you know quite often things to occur. And not all accidents are are related to um, performance issues. There could be mechanical issues and um, there could be other things that can contribute to accidents. So they're not really simple just to say human error. I can uh, give you many instances of what the human, you may think is a human error, but you realize that there's something more to it. Um, This morning I was with some of your high officials here uh, talking about quote-unquote pilot error and I did a little, um, I did a little um, test to them, and it's something I do with audiences all the time. I'll tell the audience to stand up, and I tell them to repeat after me the word boast. And they'll all say, boast, 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 boast. I tell them to say it five times. They said, do it again. Boast, 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 boast. I said, do it one more time. Boast, 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 boast. And then I said, what do you put in a toaster? And then invariably they say toast. But I said, no, it's bread. Right. They just made a mistake now. Now here's the question is, they made the mistake, but who set them up?
0: Mm -hmm, That was you.
1: Yeah. And so let's make that a pilot now. The pilot made a mistake. He made an error, or she made an error. But then you got to ask the question, well, did anyone set him up? And what would be the setup? There's all kind of things that can set up. It could be procedures. It could be management. It could be regulations. It could be training. There's all kind of things that can go into setting things up. And that not only with me- uh, pilots, it could be with mechanics, any kind of aviation um, worker who's involved, air traffic controller. So when you use the term error, yeah, that's simply, that's, un- that's understood. It came out of your mouth. You look like a very smart man to me. You know you put bread in a toaster, but you just told me, or at least many people in the audience, that he put toast in a toaster. But the question is, who am I, and where can you find me? Because I could have done that to you over a speakerphone, and I could have been in California. So now I'm invisible, and one of the reasons why it takes an investigation so long is to trying to find me, and I could be way up the food chain somewhere. And um, you know, if a pilot um, had been flying for, you know, ten hours, day six days straight, and he crashes on day number six. Maybe due to fatigue. Oh, the pilot was tired. Yeah, but who put him in a position to be tired in the first place? Mm-hmm. Who hired him in the first place? And all these things, because now you're talking about a system. Yeah. So it's too simplistic to say, oh, you made an error. Yeah. But what about all these other things, too? And so that's why I, I'm never comfortable with the term, oh, he made an error, because it's too it's much more complicated than that. Yeah,
0: so the first major crash you investigated was uh northwest airlines flight 255 which crashed just after takeoff from detroit in 1987 uh just one survivor on that flight four four-year-old girl and her parents and brother were both killed in the crash mm-hmm. it seems like a really difficult thing to have to witness what keeps you motivated to doing this job or what kept you since <laughs> you're retired now
1: well yeah i i mean you know i did it 1500 times um, right it's not a matter of motivation one is very fascinating work. Um, the tragic side of it obviously is something that touches you uh, when you do this work but the putting all this together trying to determine what took place establishing the sequence of events that led up to the accident and all the tools that we use forensic tools um, um, uh, electronic tools all the things that we d- because we're basically detectives we're basically um, it's fun and fascinating how we put that together and um, so yeah it's, it's really really uh, um, it's c- interesting job. You never get bored.
0: (laughs) Do you think your reports help to provide uh, closure to the family of survivors?
1: Well, I've had them tell me that. Um, You know, we've, um, over the years, over the last 20 years, um, industry, government have taken uh, more steps to um, address the um, the surviving family of victims and of an accident. to make sure they're aware of what's going on right from the very beginning of an accident. Um, (coughs) So I've had survivors, uh, family members, um, tell me how this has helped them in their grief process. I don't know whether the term closure is uh, appropriate, but by having a better sense of what took place, that is not a mystery to them. helps them understand what took place. So I'll just leave it at that. Closure is just kind of like final, oh reports out, hmm. I'm okay now. No, I don't want to make it look like that.
0: Right, right. Um, was there ever a time when the details were too sketchy and you weren't able to determine a clear cause?
1: Oh, we, you know, we've had accidents over the years. It's more generally it's smaller airplanes. You have to realize that most accidents tend to be the smaller airplanes, not the commercial aircraft. Mm-hmm. And um, so uh, you're only as good as the information that's left behind you know, we do have crashes at times time where um, a pilot takes off from somewhere and not talking to anyone, ma- not making any f- no-flight plan, and it goes missing. Yeah. It may not be found for quite a while. And then they find it um, either through the formal search or informal search, meaning maybe a hunter is going through the woods and finds it. Yeah. Um, you may not have much information. The aircraft may have crashed and burned smaller airplanes don't have recorders right? like the larger airplanes do so trying to reconstruct what took place can be very difficult sometimes you know they use the term probable cause yeah uh,
0: so you got involved uh, in an initiative called Safe Skies for Africa yeah uh, where you work to improve safety and security practices at airlines in African countries and at the time uh, I've heard you say that there were no U.S. carriers flying to Africa and right. only a handful of African carriers flying to the U.S. Correct. You helped launch some aircraft investigation programs there. Uh, tell me about a bit about what you did and what effect that you had.
1: Yeah, that had to be one of the more um, fulfilling work that I've done in my career. Um, in 1998, there was this program called Safe Sky for Africa that was started under the Bill Clinton administration. This was actually a White House initiative. Um, the status of things at that time, there were no U.S. airlines flying to Africa. Africa has fift over 50 countries, but there were no U.S. Africa. I'm sorry, U.S. airlines flying to Africa. You would have to fly to Europe and mm-hmm. then connect and go down from there. And then there was just five airlines flying to um, the U.S. from Africa. That was Ethiopian Airlines, Egypt Egypt Air, aero Morocco from Morocco, South African Airlines, and Ghana airline. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> there was an attempt um, by the, the U.S. government to change that because trade, tourism, and a whole bunch of other reasons to make a better balance on it. So I got involved with that.
0: Uh, what does, some? mean, you must have some key points that you shared with officials in these countries about best practices and aviation safety. What, what are some of like the first things that you did to sort of help them make headway into safer well, flying?
1: Keep in mind that <laughs> the industry in general it's international practice. Mm-hmm. Much of the world practices to the same standards. Okay. You know the flight training that goes on here. Y- I can take you to Scotland right now, or mm-hmm. take you somewhere in France. They're doing the same type of standards. It's industry or international standards that are doing. So mainly, it was just trying to get um, the um, these countries, uh, and mainly we're looking at the um, accident investigation organization t- to to comply with international practice and f- my end of it was dealing with the accident investigation of our NTSB counterparts over in Africa to get their programs up to international standards. Okay.
0: Uh, so if you uh if you were starting from scratch uh, building an, uh, <laughs> an airspace system <laughs> if you had choices about runways and control towers communications uh, where would you start to make sure you're building a safe and efficient system? Well,
1: if you did, I'm not an expert on airspace or <laughs> air traffic control. That's certainly not my. I'm the person that shows up when things go wrong. Um, that's certainly not my expertise. So I, I don't think I would probably be the best to do that. Um, I would just, as I said earlier, you know, you do have international standards mm-hmm. to use and to follow those standards. What happens is when um, an entity, whether that's a government entity, or uh, private entity does not meet those standards. Trying to cut corners, for example, um, is um, usually something that plays into the sequence of events of accidents. So just meet those no standards, that's all. You know, I, I give the analysis of this. Um, you know those little donut tires that yeah. you can use the spare tires? The spares with right. the bright yellow stickers on yeah. them, yeah. Now, I'm sure you've seen, they're supposed to be used to get you home, right? Right. <laughs> right. And, uh, but you know there are people out there, you know, they're riding these things like crazy. Yeah. You read on the label there, it's right, you know, just for 25, 50 miles.
0: Well, I've definitely ridden with a guy who was driving oh, yeah, 70 yeah, miles yeah. an hour And then one day he's
1: driving and it blows. Oh, my right. God, what could have happened? Well, <laughs> it wasn't so much the tire. Maybe it was more him because right. they're trying to push the limits of things. Yeah. And um, so, you know, it's the same thing in other um, accidents is that sometimes, you know, people are not respecting the standards that should be done, just pushing it a little bit and hoping to get a little lucky, but Mm -hmm. um, that donut tire is a good example. You see it all the time, you know.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) So you're uh, one of the founding members of Brothers of the Wind, um, Embry-Riddle's first uh, club for African-American students, and uh, uh, you and Nathan Lewis, I believe? Well,
1: it was four of us at the time. Okay. Um, We were all students here, and um, it all came about... um, um, me coming here to school when I was learning how to fly, back home it was rare that I saw anyone who was also an African American flying. Mm-hmm. I fly to different airports, and uh, so when I was kind of a novelty flying yeah. in different parts of the Northeast. So when I came here, it was my first time actually being around a, a number of folks who had similar interests to me that were people about that were African American, mm-hmm. and so it was like you know to me like wow you know it was quite. Uh, amazing so it was an attempt to say hey let's create a forum where we can share information our experiences of, and 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 we were just starting to learn about the history of aviation now when I was growing up no one ever told me about the Tuskegee Airmen I knew mm-hmm. nothing about that that and then when I came here all of a sudden I said you mean they were African-American pilots that flew in World War II no one ever told me that so when I was here on campus I'm hearing these stories so that's what it was done amazingly uh, for those who had an interest in it Um, and learning more about that this would be a good forum for that.
0: Uh, So tell me a bit about how you finally got a large group to show up to meetings.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, for a while we were putting word of mouth, and this is before internet days, you got to keep in mind, you know, we put out flyers, but mainly it was word of mouth. Hey, you know, guys, let's get together over here and here. And um, we wasn't getting very good turnouts. And um, (coughs) so by then I had moved off the campus and um, uh, I, I was sharing an apartment with a roommate uh, in town and we decided to use that as the place to have one of these gatherings. So we got some flyers and put the word out that we were having this um event and we're giving free alcohol beverage. <laughs> well that <laughs> became the selling point. <laughs> uh well, I'll never forget and this is around about September of 1974. There were so many people that showed up to my apartment, and most of them were not even Embry-Riddle people. You know, the word got out all over the town, free alcohol, you know, alcoholic beverages and mm-hmm. being at this, and oh, my goodness. so that, That's so. a
0: time-honored way to oh, draw college well, students. Yeah, for sure.
1: yeah, well, you know, I, I didn't have a good sense of that. I just thought this was just another <laughs> little hook to be able to get some yeah. of our folks to come. I Trust me, that hook worked. <laughs> yeah. and uh, But so that's how we got a big gathering, and we were able to, you know, finally get folks together, and explain to them what our purpose was, and uh, we yeah, kind of went from there and started having more formal meetings and eventually got the, the organization recognized by the school.
0: Yeah, uh, so um, the it seems like the, the diversity profile was different in your time as a pilot before coming here uh, compared to um, sort of being in the student population. Um, uh, can you tell me a bit about why it was important to you to have an organization for people of color in aviation?
1: Well, it, it was um, to share stories, um, to learn the history, which um, I certainly didn't have. Um, as I mentioned to you earlier, you know, I, I, as I was doing my flying and flying around different places, um, I, I just rarely came across someone um, color or women that were flying at the time. And this was the first place I've ever se- had seen that. And I said, we can't let this go to waste. We've got to come together and share a story. So it was just mainly just to um, make sure that we had a, a very good sense, to know that there were people that came before us, that we were not necessarily some kind of pioneer, per se, mm-hmm. and that there was actually a rich history of people of color flying, and we didn't really know that at the time. So this kind of gave us more of that you know, much solid foundation but we sprung up off, sprung off from there we did more things than just get together we were holding events outside the school we, we were doing working with um, There was a local um, <coughs> juvenile detention center mm-hmm. um, in town we would go there and uh, hold events and working with young kids there so we were doing a lot of social services so it started out as basically the gathering but it, it spun off they did a whole bunch of things more f- um, for the community as well
0: yeah, that's great that you were a, a community oriented organization. Yeah. Um, do you feel like attitudes toward people of color were different at Embry-Riddle than in aviation industry in general?
1: Uh, you mean different? You mean um, more welcoming? Well, no, I, when I came here to, um, and I continued to fly here, even though I had my private pilot license before I came, I continued. No, I, I felt quite welcomed here. And not only were there people of African ancestry from America here, there were some from all over the world. It was the first time I'd seen that as well. And um, so they were all flourishing and very much involved. I can recall way back when uh, there were even a few African-American flight instructors on the flight line. You know, there were students that had graduated and there. So I I must say uh, that I've always felt that this campus um, created uh, an environment of fairness for those of us that were here at the time,
0: do you? I'm wondering um, who was your your role model when you were growing up?
1: Uh, well, my parents were. Was it, for me, it was my mother, but um, they were my role models um, to um, give me. The, they gave me a really good upbring upbringing, and um, and I was. I loved to read, so I was always reading about you know different um, successful folks. There were a few folks who, uh, when I started to learn how to fly, who became mentors to me. Who mm-hmm. you know. Well quite formidable and pushed me to, you know, try to continue on in aviation and and, um, continue to um, develop my credentials as a pilot. Um, Those were some early influences to me. Um, But mainly it was just my, you know, my parents, my mother. And um, there was another other person who had introduced me to uh, the history of Tuskegee Airmen, just barely. And that was quite helpful. So, it was a collective effort, it wasn't any one person to say, yes, that was the person that had the most influence. It was just a, a multitude of folks. Mm-hmm. Can you tell
0: me how it was helpful to hear about the, to learn about the Tuskegee Airmen?
1: Yeah, because, you know, I went through high school and, you know, watching TV, I never saw anything. I, no one ever said anything there, you know, there wasn't anything that was offered in high school. and. Um, my father was a World War II veteran, and uh, unfortunately, you know, my, my dad died when he was very young, and I was very young, when, um, so I didn't get a chance to hear his story, mm-hmm. although he wasn't in, the, he was not in the Tuskegee Airmen, but um, no one had ever mentioned it to me at all. I just came across it by accident, and like, huh? You mean there were these guys flying in World War II? Uh, you know, I was born in the middle 50s, so I still kind of remember Jim Crow laws, yeah. you know, I still remember. Riding on the back of the buses. Uh, I experienced those kind of things. And so in that content, you know, you said, wow, this is happening. How in the world is anybody flying an airplane (laughs) under those conditions? And here I'm finding out there was folks back in the 40s uh, flying aircraft. And then later on, and and this is something I had not mentioned before, I mentioned it today during the... um, commencement speech that I got a chance to meet one of the Tuskegee Airmen uh-huh. and then later when I went to Washington DC to work for the NTSB for a period of time I was the tour guide at the air and spaceman Museum, but they call a docent and it just so happens that one of the persons that was on the on the board at the air and spaceman Museum was General Benjamin O. Davis Jr. he was the head of the Tuskegee Airmen and I got to meet him uh-huh. and he befriended me and he and this is after I left in Riddle I, I'm sorry, I graduated from M. <laughs> and I got a chance to meet him. And the stories he told me I mean, this guy was a leader. And um, that was, you know, and, and they went through a whole lot. I mean, there's stories he told me that, you know, were just unbelievable. course, <coughs> you know, they fought overseas and um, some of the things that they encountered. And he wrote a book and he signed the book. I have it at home. It's, it's um, one of my prized possessions. I because he passed away many years ago. That's excellent. Um,
0: So now it's, uh, I I didn't warn you about this, Uh, Uh now it's time Uh for our lightning round. (laughs) 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 I'm going to give you uh, five questions and uh, you're going to give me five answers and hopefully they'll match. So are you you ready? Yes, sir. All right. Uh, If you could fly any plane ever made from anywhere to anywhere, what do you choose?
1: Hmm. Any airplane I still like old-fashioned and rudder skills, you know, yeah. simple airplanes that don't have much equipment that I have to use basic navigation for, so, you know, take a Piper Cub and fly from New York all the way to Miami. Yeah, that's a good long not, trip. Not using any GPS, you know, just doing it the old-fashioned way, I, that's something I enjoy doing. That's excellent. I would enjoy doing
0: it. That'd be a real scenic flight for yeah. sure. Yeah. Uh, so, if you could read only one book for the rest of your life, what would it be?
1: I love to read on all subject matters, but most of it is self-help books. Think and Grow Rich was one of my favorite books. Um, And um, this is a book that was written back in the 40s, and I still continue to read it to this very day, Think and Grow Rich. And uh, I think many people are are aware of it. It talks about the richness of your mind. It got me in a positive attitude to feel confident about myself that I could achieve anything that I I set my mind to. And even as I got older and had plenty of success, I continu- continued to read that book.
0: Excellent. Uh, who's your favorite cartoon character of all time, or comic book character, or do you have one?
1: <sighs> you know, I, I I come from that era when they had the Warner Brothers cartoons, and you had Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck. Yeah. and that, those were the ones I was watching at the time. I I, I enjoyed the Bugs Bunny, you know, because he was kind of wily and always had something up his sleeves, and, um, and they were just kind of fun to watch. and um, So yeah, it would be um, Bugs Bunny. Excellent. That would be a cartoon I'd sit around and watch all day long.
0: Uh, so picture for me your ideal grilled cheese sandwich. What's, what's in that sandwich, and what kind of bread is it
1: on? I want to do something to you that I uh, didn't do with the audience today. I, grilled cheese sandwich is something that I use in a um, negotiation class that I teach. Oh, really? <laughs> And what I do is that I, I put the scenario. You go into a restaurant and they tell you, you said, I want toast. And they come back and say, We don't sell toast. And then I say, Well, then get back to them and say, Hey, do you have grilled cheese sandwich? And they say, Yes. Well, give me a grilled cheese sandwich. Just leave the cheese off of it. <laughs> <laughs> So that I, that's the first thought that came to my mind when you mentioned grilled I like grilled cheese sandwiches, but you have to go back to your question again. What, what what should I be doing with this grilled cheese sandwich? What was the question?
0: Uh, just, just picture it in your mind mm-hmm. and tell me what, what do you see. What's in it? What kind of bread is it on?
1: Now, I still make grilled cheese sandwiches, Even I think even a few days ago. It's just regular bread, you know, white bread, and I throw a slice of cheese on it and you know, I throw it into the grill. Yeah. American
0: and, um, cheese, cheddar.
1: It's American cheese. Every, okay. time, every time for me, American
0: cheese. Uh, yeah, you got to go for the classic. <laughs> All right. If you could live for a week as any person in history, uh, who,
1: who would it be? Well, you are asking interesting questions. Right? <laughs> it would be me, right? I want to be yeah. me again. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> I love me some me, right? And uh, who would I want to be? I don't You've never given any thought. I've always just enjoyed being me. So I really don't have an answer. I think they would want to be me. That's how I feel. I've had a wonderful life, a lot of opportunity, traveled all over the world, um, you know, done well from an uh, income point of view, a mm, lot of success, done some things. I mean, I've talked to world mm-hmm. leaders, and, um, and I was telling someone today, I, uh, many years ago, a small airplane tried to crash into the White House, and mm-hmm. I was involved with that investigation, and I remember as I was working on the airplane, I was looking at the aircraft crashed along the side of the White House building, and as I'm working on it, I'm looking up and I see Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton looking at me as I'm working and I'm saying, I better get this one right. <laughs> 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 so i uh, you know, traveled all over the world. I, I, I mentioned to you of going to remote areas. I've climbed Mount Kenya, the second highest mountain in Africa, t- to get to a crash site. Uh. I've been out in the swamps area. Um, I've been um, you know, in Russia. I've been China. I mean, I've had really enjoyable life. It hasn't ended yet, mm-hmm. so I, I kind of like being me. That's awesome. <laughs> that's, that's a
0: totally okay answer for my book. All right. Well, uh, that's, uh, that's all I've got for you. Thanks very much, Janice for uh, joining us for the Talent Talks podcast.
1: Oh, you're more than welcome. Thanks for inviting me.
0: All right. Uh, the Talent Talks podcast is a production of Wicked Radio and the Embry-Riddle Office of Alumni Engagement. We're coming at you from the Maury Hosseini Student Union in Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in sunny Daytona Beach, Florida. Thanks for downloading us. We'll see you next time.